Um, we are in a sermon series called The Eight Practices, where we're unpacking these eight spices, we say, that kind of make us who we are as a church. Um, and we're going to talk about this idea of creating beauty this morning. Um, and as I was thinking about it, you know, we're in Lent, and, and the way we start Lent if you were at our Ash Wednesday services, there's a disposition of ashes, and you probably heard the line, from dust you came and dust you shall return. And it's in that space between that we're more than simply dust, though, that there's all this potential wrapped up in these creations made of dust, that we're not just dusty, that we actually have something to give in this world. And yet sometimes those attempts can really go wrong, and uh, if you have uh, been binge-watching on Netflix or Hulu, uh, you probably came across uh, this festival that happened in 2017, or attempted to happen, that was called the Fire Festival. How many of you heard about the Fire Festival? That's right. So the Fire Festival, and the way it came up, it was just like, like they would just flood Instagram with these orange pictures, right, and all these influencers were posting this and hashtagging about this big event coming, coming up. And the idea of it was started by two people, um, one named Billy McFarlane, and Billy is just a guy in his late 20s who did well as a young millennial entrepreneur in New York. Um, and of course, he decided his tag team partner should be any, no one else except Ja Rule, which Makes sense, like I would like Ja Rule to be a partner with me in life. So Billy and Ja Rule decide if you're over 40, you don't know what I just said. So anyway, Billy and Ja Rule then decided to go, we're gonna create this app, and this app's gonna be called Fire, and the app is gonna give you as an individual the ability to book like these mainstream expensive artists, like a Jay-Z or a Ja Rule, that it would give you direct contact to them and remove the middleman, remove the manager. And the idea was kind of brilliant. So if you had 50K laying around and you wanted maybe somebody like that to come and do your house party, there you go, you could have it. So the question is, so how do then you create the big splash so that everybody wants it? Well, you do a festival. And this festival, they started advertising. What they did is they went down to the Bahamas uh, to Pablo Escobar's supposed island where his treasure was buried. And they went there and they recorded with all these models and beautiful people and all this alcohol, this most amazing experience, swimming with fish and playing with the pigs that were there on the island. And they captured this beautiful video. And then they sent it out to the world and everybody lost their minds. Well, like a lot of people lost their minds. And they were going like, this is incredible. Like finally something I can put a lot of money to and really feel special and go hang out with all these amazing people. And they started saying, okay, you can get a via here on Pablo Escobar's island for like $25,000 for the week. And you can come stay here. You can rent out a special space on a yacht that's just, you know, a few feet off the island for $100,000 and have this amazing experience. And so all these young wealthy people started going, this is the event, we gotta go to it. And yet what they didn't know is that the whole time that there was like this other shadow side to it, which these documentaries then like tried to paint a picture of. And these documentaries on Hulu and 
Netflix were trying to say, hey, listen, this is, uh, this was the biggest cluster. Because what was really happening was that this guy, Billy, like he was just trying to project this idea of beauty of what it was going to be. But what they found out is they couldn't really book the island. So they had to move it to Exima, which was like not the same as Pablo Escobar's island. And then they had to find an industrial area that was like sand pits and concrete. And they put up like hurricane emergency tents and like these beds that like were inflatable and being blown around with the wind. And when people showed up there, they found that they didn't have some kind of amazing chef to create all these amazing meals for them. Instead, they were given bread and cheese and lettuce, and that was their great fancy meal. And as, you know, there were two sides to this because you had all these really rich people showing up there, some spending 25, others $100,000 as experience, and they're tweeting and Instagram about it. And like all these middle class people are laughing at them, right? Saying, you deserve this. I'm so glad this happened to you. A lot of you here at Christ City did this, I know. So like, like this, what was happening in the world? They were trying to project to create something beautiful, but they really weren't creating beauty, and there is a difference. They created something beautiful, seemingly, but it truly wasn't beauty because it couldn't sustain, it couldn't maintain, and what we'll find is it really couldn't give back to the world around us. And what ended up happening is they ended up crippling a lot of people in the Bahamas financially. And there are reports of people who are out anywhere from five to $50,000 I mean, these are people who cannot afford that, who put their life savings into their business so that they were prompt, because they were promised by Billy and Ja Rule that all these people were going to come and they were going to spend money. And it left people crippled there financially. So there was a projection of beauty, but it didn't make things beautiful because ultimately it was crippling. And I think this is a great cautionary tale for us as, as, as followers of Christ. Because I think there's a difference between us trying to just make beautiful things and then us actually trying to create a beautiful world. And that's what I want us to jump into today. I want us to try to unpack. And we're going to use chapter 1 of Genesis. But before we do, it's important that we see that there's actually something that precedes the story of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, um, it's somewhere between Moses saying it and it being passed down orally, and then people in the 6th and 5th century BCE writing it in Babylon. It's somewhere in between, all right? There's enough history to try to prove both sides there. But we also know that there was stories in the air, stuff in the water already, that this narrative was trying to talk to or push against. And in the um, 19th century, there was a discovery uh, in modern-day Iraq where in this tomb of a king, they, they found these ancient tablets. And these tablets were of old Babylonian history and culture and the way that the Babylonians, and the Babylonians range not just during the exiles in the 5th and 6th century, but they go all the way back to even like 2,400 years BCE, some say even over 3,000 years BCE, that the first civilization that you could point to in the Middle East was these Babylonians. 
And so they have this culture they created through writing these stories. And as they uncovered these tablets in the 19th century, they found a lot of these stories that shape culture. I'm going to just throw a couple up here because I want you to see people believed that whatever's written in these stories, that was the story and narrative of their life. Because stories have a powerful play for each one of us. Each of us are living in a story handed to us or trying to push against or react to a story handed to us. So this first tablet I'm going I'm to show you, or at least put the words up to, is from the uh, Atrothosis Epic. This is one of the older writings they have. And there's just one line that's so interesting in there. And the line says this, let man assume the drudgery of God. Now, there were lots of gods, and there were different stories of Anu and his son Inki. Eventually, there was a, a god called Murdoch uh, that would come about more in the 5th and 6th century BCE. And these gods had created a world that they had to do these things they didn't want to do, like take care of the world. And so the story goes that they got so tired of taking care of the world, they decided to, to create humans. And humans now will do the drudgery of the gods. So there's that. But then we have another series of tablets called the Enuma Elish, which is really a more comprehensive set of history we have. And the Enuma Elish, it's a little bit longer, but I just want to read this to you. It says, I will take blood and fashion bone. I will establish a savage man shall be his name. Truly savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. They bound, and the person's name is Kingu, they imposed on him his punishment and severed his blood vessels, and out of his blood they fashioned mankind. Now this is what people were buying into at this time in history about where they came from, about what they were meant for. Because wherever you came from now dictates a story of how you are to then live your life. Now, let's just think about this for a second. If you are a person to grow up in a reality like this, that humanity is formed for nothing more than drudgery, that humanity is meant to be savage, and that humanity is found out of bloodshed, well, then now you're going to make this into I statements. Now you'll say, I'm worth nothing more than drudgery. I'm only savage and vicious. And I am created in bloodshed. This is what shaped the minds of people for thousands of years in the ancient Near East. And just think if those narratives are reinforced time and time and time again, that this was the dominant origin story, that you were simply created to survive and survive by any means, then what kind of people would that mentally produce? Well, I think it would produce a people that weren't just in tribes, but had tribalism. Like you can't just have your spot, you now have the only spot it's not just my people. We are the only true people. I think it then would have to probably create things like the need to be against others. It would maybe create an, un, an understanding that you have to live below others or you even have to live above others. But you really just can't live with others because life is violent and you're savage and you're meant for nothing more than drudgery. 
And so therefore, do whatever you can to survive by any means. Now, that said, going back to Genesis, if we take this and compare it to Genesis, and the people of God now are saying there is a new narrative to the world, one that is older than the world understands, and they start mirroring the mythology happening and saying, okay, we have our own type of mythology in the sense of we have a God that created this whole world. And every time God created, it was good. And the things he created were worthwhile and beautiful. And they had purpose and meaning. And so it goes through Genesis chapter 1 that God created and it was good. And God created and it was good. Matter of fact, even how Genesis 1 starts, that in darkness God created, which means tovu vavohu. Out of darkness, out of chaos, God created order. And they're taking the story that the ancients were believing and saying, there's a better reality for you. And then when we consider what they're saying, read this again. Let's look at it with me. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. How different of a narrative is that now? Like if you were buying into that as opposed to the other narrative, what kind of person would that then make you? Obviously a more empowered person. You're not created for drudgery. You're actually created in the image of God. It says here that God makes stuff, that God makes stuff without having to spill blood, and that the apex of what God makes humans is very good. He makes them in his image with dignity and worth. Like the, the closest we can get in the Hebrew is that he made them in the nature of who God is. So we have inherent dignity, inherent worth, that we don't start in Genesis 3, we start in Genesis 1. You are a creation. You are created. You are beautiful. Out of dust, something was shaped. And he then gives humans these like divine royal responsibilities. Look around your world like a good king and queen would and see how you can better this thing around you. See how you can add value, sustain things, and he gives them creative rights. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible. These active words of what we're to do with our existence in this world. And yet, it's not just in the Old Testament. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2.10, you'll see here, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love this word, handiwork. It's, it's the word in Greek, poema. And the most simple way to explain poema is craft. Like, we are craft. Now, if Christ City, if there's one thing Christ City loves, we love our craft, don't we? Like, we love our craft culture, right? We love, like, whether it's getting a good pour over, right? Come on now. Like, whether it's having that right experience at Catherine and Mary's, right? 
because that pasta is too fine, right? Like whether it's a particular drink that you like to drink, whether it's even art that you want to paint, um, whether it's even things you want to do in your yard. Some of you love craft culture of even in your backyard, like raising bees and things, crazy things like that, that I would never do. Like some of y'all are really way too into this. Like even this right here made by Ben Hancock is our pulpit. Ben is a woodworker and a craftsman and made this. Matt Davis, which in the back, we have these white boxes where you put offering in. And I've become convinced of this. Nobody puts offering in those white boxes because it looks like 1999 Creed, right? Like, it's just like, these are like some, some bezazzled jeans from the buckle or something like that. So we're like, we got to make better boxes. So we got Matt Davis to make us these beautiful boxes, which we'll be putting up. And then you'll want to give more money. So like, the idea is that though we want to create and craft things, and you are crafted by God. You have this amazing potential inside of you because of what you were made from and by whom you were made by. And I love here how it says that we are God's handiwork, his craft created in Christ Jesus to do these good works, to then pass this craft on, to walk in this, to bring this to the world around us. And what we have in Jesus is finally a true image bearer who shows us what it looks like to do good craft. And here's the thing. Craft isn't limited to simply something you make in, like, your studio. Craft are the things we project in this world that can be beautiful, that can, like, have sustainability. You can create craft in your marriage by simply having a good and true and honest and deep marriage. You can create craft in your children by raising children that aren't like insane and horrible little people, right? Like you can create craft in your job, even typing in numbers and making sure that your workplace has order because order is craft. It's not limited to just one side where you go get your coffee and your art. You are a person of craft. You're meant to make things then that are beautiful, which then means if this passage is true, both of these, here's what it's telling us. We may not be big, but we're a big deal. You're not big, you're not God, but you are a big deal because you're made by God. And to some degree, we have to be willing to wake up with that narrative and remind ourselves of that truth. Otherwise, we find ourselves susceptible that we're only worth drudgery. And we're only worth being against. And we're only worth the bloodshed. Which then perpetuates, like, if I were to ask you just to pause for a second and think about it, how many of those narratives of the ancient Near East are still true today? So many. Like it's, it's like it's in the water. It's like this inherent thing that humans want to keep going towards instead of buying in that there's maybe even a greater and higher purpose. And when we create beauty and not just beautiful things, we give the world something to be compelled and challenged in and through. Because it's not just trying to create beautiful things. Billy and Ja Rule were creating some beautiful things, supposedly. They created a beautiful video. 
They brought beautiful people around to swim with pigs. That looked amazing. I watched the video and I thought, honestly, knowing what I know today, I would still give them $50,000 to go do that, right? Like if I had it, I'd go do it. It looked incredible. Like we're compelled by beautiful things. But there has to be more than just beautiful things. We have to be willing to create beauty. That we don't just see ourselves as utilitarian, but instead we see ourselves as something with potent potential. You're not just a useful thing, you're a beautiful thing meant to create beauty in this world. In your bulletin, Erwin McManus, he said it this way, it takes courage to not only accept our limitations to, but embrace our potential. To deny our creative nature is to choose a life where we are less and thus responsible for less. We, we see ourselves as created beings, so we choose to survive. But when we see ourselves as creative beings, we must instead create. If you simply, and if I simply see myself only as a created being, that I'm utilitarian, that I just simply need to wake up, put fuel in my body, and do the thing in front of me and move on, I miss what my purpose really could be in this world. You know, we get really stuck on this conversation about what am I to do with my life? And I get it, because honestly, it's, it's a tiring journey. And the fact that we put on people at 18 to 22 years old in college to figure out their life when their brain scientifically is not even fully developed, right? There's a cosmic oversight there on our side, on our end, that it's a big ask that you have to know what to do with your life as opposed to maybe you're trying to be in your life, living it with purpose, and then you find things that you can, like, create beauty in. Like, maybe it's not that your, your job where you have to maybe type in numbers or move trinkets from one place to another, maybe it's not that you're going, well, this is such a great craft with my life. It could be that you're open to moments of creating beauty in those places, interacting with people, bettering a situation, being open for God to come and invade the moment and to give you some kind of inspiration and intuition of how to create beauty. And yet this is a challenge for us because we tend to want to simply survive because we're created instead of knowing that we're creative and therefore thrive. It's a challenge for us to want to live that way I think there's even some dilemmas with that. That because we only see ourselves as a created being, we tend to then do things that's just for us or has temporary worth and weight to it. I was looking through just several stats just within the world of how the world goes wrong when humans don't invest in creating beauty and just simply go for maybe a beautiful thing, a temporary thing. We as humans make up 0.01% of the biomass in the world, right, of the biomass in the world. And yet, we as humans 
have destroyed over 83% of wildlife. It's staggering our influence. Like 0.01% biomass, and yet we can do that much destruction within the world around us. As a matter of fact, within the last 10 years, 25% of natural wildlife has been destroyed, used up. Like It's insane when you start thinking about that we're called to be stewards in this world, and yet we end up just kind of using the world. And I think a lot of times that mentality can even come from like, well, because like God's got this, I'm sure he can create more trees if he wants to, or more animals whenever he wants to. So we have this part here that says we have destroyed all this wildlife, and then you think about wars. This was crazy to think about. We have 3,400 years of human history that we can date back to about 3,400 years of humans walking along this world. Every one of those years, humans have been in war except for 268 years. So out of 3,400 years, we've only had 268 years of peace around the world, which means 8% of the world's existence has been in peace. Within the 20th century, 108 million people died in war. Just in the 20th century. And then when you try to extrapolate that throughout the 3,400 years, we get closer to the 1 billion mark of people who have died in war. By the way, the Crusades, which Christians propagated, over uh, 3 million people. 3 million people around religion because we had to go win land back. And it's incredible the potential that humans have. 24.9 million people, supposedly, are in forced labor today. That's called slavery. And sex trafficking every year is a $99 billion industry. It's staggering to think of the potential that God gave us as humans, that we could create this beautiful world, that we were meant to be good stewards of this world, to, to do things that make the world flourish, and yet, in a thoughtless place, time and time again, our tendency is to continue waking up saying, well, I'm only a created being. I don't really play a big role. God's got this. And I'll just wait for the new heavens and new earth. Matter of fact, my mentality growing up with my eschatological or my future view of how the world would work, my view is this, that, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I can't really do anything about it. I'm going to be raptured out of here anytime, which basically means somebody's going to hit my car and die when I'm out of here, right? And then I'm going to come back in seven years when there's lots of war, and then God's going to press the reset button and we're all good. Like that was my mentality, so I was kind of like, I'll just use up the world the way I want. Or we try to use up the world only to get the world converted. But there's nothing about that in Genesis 1. 
Like the world simply is just groaning for something more. Simone Weil, this French philosopher, Christian philosopher, she said, from where will a renewal come to us to those who have devastated the whole earthly globe? Like, where's it going to come from? Even Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 8. We'll put it up. Romans chapter 8. If you're in church long enough, you know this chapter. It's a beautiful chapter about how we are these adopted sons and daughters of the Most High, renewing our purpose for who we're made by and what we're made for. And there's this interesting part, though, in here. At verse 19, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as of the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creations, creation knows this. It can't better itself. It can't get to where it needs to go without a cultivator, without someone stepping in and making something beautiful and sustainable and not just temporary. Like it's not just going for all of us. Well, here's the thing that I want And, like, I don't really care if one day it's trash and it affects somebody else. Because they'll be happy with it, whatever it may be. Like, and you've heard that phrase before, one man's trash, another man's treasure. So there you go. It'll be their treasure. Except, like, what happens when it fills the world up with more and more useless stuff that we don't know what to do with or where to put it? And trust me, I'm not trying to be some kind of tree-hugging, like, preacher this morning telling you, if you don't recycle, you're going to hell. Not trying to give you that. I mean, you may, I don't know, but joking. But I'm saying like, there has to be some level of a higher consciousness for us to go, it's not just about me getting mine and I'm okay if you don't get yours. At some point, that's not beautiful. If I'm creating things that put the burden on someone else, then it's not creating beauty. If I'm creating something, if I'm perpetuating a system, something that doesn't pay it forward to others benefiting from what I have experienced, it's not creating beauty, and then we're not being good stewards of what God's given us. That's the challenge of it. It's so difficult, which means now you got to become like really conscious of what you put your money to. we got to be really conscious of what we put our time towards. And by the way, you're not going to get it all right. I guarantee you I'm wearing something that's unethical. So are you. I'm guaranteeing you there's something in the city you enjoy that was brought about through slave labor. I guarantee you those things are there. I guarantee you when we go enjoy a certain cup of coffee, we don't know where the beans came from, that maybe somebody was cheated somewhere in Guatemala. Like, I guarantee you that probably could have happened. And it doesn't mean we go, well, you know, like, I'll just move on, and, or I can't do anything about it, or you'd become like Batman and try to go destroy people's lives if they don't, like, recycle or something. Like Dwight Schrute on Office, God, I, I wish I played that clip for you right now. That'd be perfect. What was he called again? Cyclops. Cyclops. What would he call himself? Recyclops. 
Golly, I wish we had a Recyclops today. It's not about trying to solve all the problems. It's just trying to heighten our conscience a little bit more to be better stewards of what we're over. Matter of fact, on your way out, I don't know if you guys are able to bring it or not. Maybe one Sunday we will. But I remember when we had a, a Mercy and Justice Fair, um, uh, Becky Carter and uh, I think Blake and Katie Barber, they put together like a front and back sheet of ways to even kind of have more of a sustainable living with what you buy and how you spend your money and all those kind of things. Like, it's beautiful. I love that people in this church think those ways. And if you don't, it doesn't make you a bad person. But here's what I mean. At some point in time, we have to take serious what we're in this world for, that we're here to create beauty. And N.T. Wright says it well when he says, every act of love, every deed done in Christ and by the Spirit, every work of true creativity, listen to this, doing justice, making peace, healing families, resisting temptation, seeking and winning true freedom, is an earthly event and a long history of things that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation. Friends, every time you choose to love and not hate, and every time you choose to pick up trash or put it in the right receptacle, every time you choose to make amends, and not live with bitterness, every time you make a choice to love your child instead of raging on your child, every time you choose to engage your spouse instead of get away from your spouse, and every time you decide to follow that thread you pull on that may lead to more injustice and cruelty even in our own city and do something about it, every one of those times, we are bringing forth what creation's always been longing for. And that is a people who take serious their presence in this world. In Ephesians 2, again, when Paul said that we are God's craft, at the end, I love it, it's like this is truly the purpose of what we all do and we do it well together. It says in verse 19, he's using us all, irrespective of how we got here and what he is building he used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. Each of us taking serious what we're doing builds brick by brick a home for God, a presence for other people to interact with that tells them a better story than what the world hands them. That life is not about waking up to simply survive. Life is not about simply being against. Life is not trying to be above or below. Life is receiving this truth that we're not big, but we're a big deal. That we are God's craft made to flourish in Christ Jesus, to do works that bring about resurrection power in this world. It all ties together simply when we consider not just trying to create beautiful things, but simply trying to create a beauty that the world can grab a hold of, that can better it, and it can flourish in. Let's pray.
So Lord, now as we come to your table, we find that elements simply of wine and bread are now made into something truly that is beautiful, that has sustainability, that every time a human's willing to see it, interact with it, that you gave up your life, and in your death, we now find a place of forgiveness, a place to belong, a place that says, hey, don't forget that you really matter. And so I pray that all of us, as we come forward today, we would consider and be willing to be convicted. Where are we just trying to, like, consume beautiful things instead of actually trying to create beauty? And then when we have that guilt and that shame, we'd be able to bring it to this table and know that in you we have forgiveness and restoration and a new motivation of how to interrupt the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen.